I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is a speaker, a teacher, an author, a thinker. He is a physicist, a mathematician, a psychologist, and a spiritual seeker, Peter Russell. Peter focuses on the topic of consciousness and spiritual awakening, not only from the point of view of their impact on our individual growth as humans, but also from the role they play in the future of humanity. Hi, there you are. How are you? Good, thank you. It's great. I am so honored that you're here. I'm pleased to be with you. I think we're going to have a good time. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So I think the best, best start is to talk about a topic that you talk about a lot, which is the idea of how fast life has become. Because I think this is really in line with what we're doing here. You know, slow-mo is all about slowing down, about trying to break from the pace that the history of life has put on us. And I adore the analogy that you use, which is if the history of life is a hundred years, as the Indian philosophy, as you say, or basically says, then humanity is the blink in the eye of God. Tell us a bit about that. It's just, yes, if you look at the timescales of the, whatever it is, 13 billion years of the universe, and you put our lifetime in that, it's just a fraction of a second. I actually use the analogy, I think, of one year. Make it all one year, then our own lifetime is the time it takes to blink. Yeah. In that fraction of a second it takes you to blink, out of one year, is the time we're here for. Yeah, if I remember correctly, life itself even starts in December of that year, right? Um, if you make it a whole year... Life began fairly soon. So in terms of the planet, I was actually looking at the life of the planet. Life started fairly early on. In the, we're sort of going back. Now it's probably started about, after just half a billion years, life was established. So you could say in spring of the year, life was established. But then it was just bacteria and algae, just single-celled creatures for most of that year. And multicellular creatures. Um, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs reign around Christmas. And then the first human beings, we're talking about the very last quarter hour of that year. And then suddenly what we call modern times is just the last second or two of that year. And so it just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And what I see is this is a completely natural process. It's basically what's called in information theory, systems theory, positive feedback. The more you have of something that's invested, you know, the more money you have, the more it's invested, the more interest you get. It's the same thing with evolution. The more species you have, the more complex they get, the faster the evolution happens. And it, it just grows exponentially. It has been growing exponentially since the very beginning. And so what we're seeing now in terms of our own personal experience of life speeding up, I mean, I've just seen that in my own lifetime so clearly. That's just the current 
place that this ever accelerating process has got to. So it's not something that we are actually responsible for. It would happen anyway. And it's something we have to recognize and live with and see where it's going. I mean, we think things are going so much faster today than they were 20 years ago, but it's going to be much faster still in the future. So we have to, we have to learn how to live with that. How do you see it that it's not our responsibility? I think, I believe that there is something around how time accelerates that might be actually related to the expansion of the universe. The bodies in the universe have to travel longer distances to cover the same time. And so somehow you have to either speed up time or keep the distance the same if you were to have a day continue to be a day. But definitely the fact that you and I have to respond to each other's emails within 20 seconds Otherwise, you know, I'll get a text from you saying, did you get my email or, you know, you, I don't from you, but I'm from others, right? That definitely is a human invention, isn't it? That in itself is a human invention. I mean, emails, but the fact that what we're inventing gets faster and faster, I think is going to happen anyway, whatever our inventions. I believe that. So, you know, just the development, I mean, let's take emails. I mean, we developed something that was, more efficient than sending letters and so that just speeds things up but whatever we invent if you look at it almost any invention that we come up with is something that makes life more efficient faster if someone came up with an invention that really slowed things down <laughs> would it, ca- would it catch on <laughs> i wish so yeah. there is that ingredient you know we want things to go faster we want things to be more efficient which is a whole other question of you know what we're actually looking for and wanting in life but i think the fact things are going to get faster the whole time so if you know you go back twenty thousand years dawn of agriculture you know things were progressing much much slower at that time then agriculture it started allowing communities to come together into larger groups and you start getting the division of labor and then you know from that people moving a few thousand years later five thousand years beginning to come together in city civilization which again allowed things to go faster so we didn't start the agricultural revolution or the moving into cities in order that things could go faster that was just a consequence yeah i think the logic you use is, is quite true it is exponential you know you build the industrial revolution the speed of the industrial revolution on top of the speed that you've gained in the agricultural revolution and then you build the information revolution on top of that and so you're basically multiplying the speed that's generated by each one and adding that other speed to it and that's exponential in nature for sure How far can we go? I mean, I'm supposed to be like a geek. I'm supposed to be keeping up with this. It's just impossible to continue to keep up. There are going to be limits. It's going to go even faster. I mean, the next stage, which I see is, I think we're going to call it the intelligence revolution more than the information revolution. As AI starts creeping in everywhere, you know, one of the reasons we're doing that is AI is much more efficient than human beings in solving problems or regular computing. So that's going to speed things up. The limits to it are, how much change can we take as individuals without burning out but also how fast can innovation spread through our culture through the world there must be a limit somewhere as to how fast a new whatever it is adaptation intelligence system whatever it is can actually spread there's going to be a theoretical limit there but i think there's going to be another limit there that begins to not slow things down but steady things out 
And that's because along with all the wonderful things that come with faster computers, artificial intelligence, whatever it is, the stress, we experience stress, the stress on the system. And I think most of the big problems we're seeing in the world actually have this exponential acceleration as their, it's behind them, it's part of what's causing it. Climate change, for example, is the accelerated consumption of fossil fuels, which really began with the Industrial Revolution and just expanded faster and faster ever since. So there's a stress on us and there's a stress on the environmental systems, but also the social systems, the economic systems. And so that stress begins to become a sort of break on the acceleration. And the, the analogy I think of sometimes is a ship, a big ship. There comes a point where the, if you're increasing the speed of the ship, there comes a point where the turbulence, the drag on the hull, becomes a limiting factor. And however much more power you put into the system, you can't get it to go much faster. So there's a limit to how fast you can push a ship through water. And I think it's similar with this, with the acceleration of our culture and the technology. The drag of the other side effects, as they begin to show, are going to bring it to a level where it begins to steady out. But it's going to steady out several times quite a few times faster than today. It's not going to slow down. There's a limit to how fast it can get. I totally you know, agree with that. I think the visualization of this is if you think of a sports car and the faster the sports car goes, the density, the air resistance, if you want. There is a point where it feels like the car is really driving through oil from how the higher speed of the car is just densing the resistance against it. And then eventually it will be like trying to drive through an ice cube. You have to stop. There is a physics limit, if you want, to how fast things can go. Do you believe that what we're going through, I mean, the idea of lockdown, the idea of, of seeing the slowdowns of the economies, is that nature saying, that's it, this is your physical limit, you should, you're not supposed to go faster than this? Um, I don't think so. I think, it's, I think it's a temporary thing. Sooner or later, we're going to stabilize. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. But I think we're going to find ways of releasing the lockdown progressively. And as we do, we're going to go back to our own ways. We're not going to say, oh, it was so wonderful when I was locked down, so slow. I'm, <laughs> going to, I'm not going to go to work so much. I'm going to really enjoy being at home and tending to the garden. No, we're going to go back like, oh, great, I can go back to work. I can make more money. I can do things. We're, I think we're just going to fall back into the old pattern. The exponential explosion. Yeah. So I think it's a temporary it's just a temporary break. So what should an individual do? I mean, I definitely don't want to go back to that speed. I think this is happening as well. We have to begin to sort of take responsibility more for ourselves and not be so much a victim of what we're told to do, what the media tells us to do. I mean, we're almost hypnotized from we're born onwards, but particularly by media, advertising, into this belief that the more you have, the happier you'll be. That's the fundamental belief that actually drives our culture because deep, deep down, I think what we're all looking for is the same thing. On the surface, we're looking for very, very different things. But when you start asking people, you know, why do you want this? Why are you looking for this? In the end, it boils down to, well, I want to be, I want to feel okay. I want to be happier, content, to be loved, whatever. But the point is we're looking for an inner state of consciousness. The outer stuff, the money, the whatever it is, that's all a path to get to an inner state of, to use your word, of just being happier. 
And deep down, we all know that just getting more things doesn't make us happy. We know that deep down. But that's why I say it's a bit like hypnosis. But we still succumb to it and carry on with what our culture is telling us. But I think the first thing, and it's a fundamental thing of so many different philosophies and teachings, is to realize that I can be happy without having all this. I don't need all this. And that there's another route to being happy, which is actually stepping out of all that thinking we get into that keeps us wanting stuff, planning stuff. So the way I see it is that our thinking mind, well, not just thinking, but particular aspect of thinking I call the ego mind. The ego mind is, the way I define it, is that way of thinking that says, if I have this, I'll be happier. It's the way of thinking that says, my happiness depends upon what I have or do. And to just recognize we know that's not true. And so to actually say, how can I be happier, more at peace in myself without the need to do this? And I think that's one thing the lockdown is showing people is I am actually quite happy. Now, I'm not saying let me go back a step there because, of course, there's a lot of people who are really not happy. They're suffering. They've lost work or whatever it is. But some people are realizing I can be happy without a lot of the stuff. I think your statement is very accurate. In the absence of a real reason for unhappiness that the pandemic has brought, getting sick, losing a loved one, you know, losing your job, losing income and so on. In the absence of that reason, reality is most people you talk to will say, oh my God, I love having the kids over the dinner table or I love spending the quiet time or I love being able to slow down and reflect and so on. It's undeniable. I don't have the, the statistics behind it. I read an article a couple of weeks ago that more than 48% of people surveyed, 70,000 people surveyed in the UK were saying, no, I actually like this. I'm happy with this. Slowing down seems to be maybe a little more in synchronicity with who we really are. Yeah, it's giving us a taste of how it could be. And I think that taste is going to stick for a lot of people, even though we're going to rev up again quite a bit. I think we've had that experience. And I think there'll be a growing number of people who stay slower. Because coming back to the happiness, I see a natural state of mind is one of being happy, content. And then if there's something wrong, if there's something we need, we feel discontent because we haven't got it. And that discontent is the motivation to do something about it. If you're hungry, we feel discontent, we feel unhappy, we eat, and we go back to feeling content. I think the problem is that we create so much discontent for ourselves in our thinking. Thinking, oh, I should have this. Can I get this? Will this happen? What's going to be? So a lot of our thinking is actually creating discontent, which in a way veils what I see is, is our natural state of contentment. Yeah, so this is a big part of what I actually believe in. I believe that we end up becoming unhappy because of that need for survival, even though we tend to define survival a little too cautiously. Let's put it this way. It's like, if I don't have that second home, or I, if I don't have enough income to last me the next, you know, whatever number of months, or if I don't have this, or if I don't have that, then maybe I'm not safe. And I tell people openly, you know, and I say that with a lot of respect, that if you have the device that allows you to listen to this podcast, then you're probably in a reasonably good shape compared to the rest of the world. If you have the 40 minutes that you can spare to listen to this podcast, 
I encourage you to do that, by the way. You have more more luxuries in life than many people who have to labor through three jobs to make ends meet and so on and so forth. And while my heart is definitely with those who suffer, real suffering, the truth is sometimes some of us suffer unwarranted suffering, unnecessary suffering, just because we're constantly comparing to those things we want or we're missing and so on. You have a very optimistic view of the awakening of the global brain. Right. Now, I'm not so optimistic. <laughs> I'm not, I, 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 I wrote that book 40 years ago. I was more optimistic then. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You know, it's, it's the truth. So the theory here is that we are plugging into global consciousness, if you want, right? Yes, yes. The idea started way back in the 70s when I was actually doing early work in computer networking. And we were just networking in 1971. We had a huge Atlas computer. I was at the Cambridge Computer Lab. We had the biggest computer, one of the two biggest computers. The other one was at Manchester University. Cambridge University had these huge colossal machines upstairs. And downstairs, we had one of the first PDP-7s. And we had a cable <laughs> three, four inches thick cable coming down through the roof. And so I was working on just networking and I realized this is where the future is. It isn't getting bigger and bigger computers. It's the networking computers. So I just saw where is this going to go in terms of the world, in terms of linking us together. And, and so the global brain is we are like the nerve cells of the planet. We're the information processors. And then I could see that we don't know how, whatever the latest estimate is, the trillion neurons in the human brain, we don't know how they create a consciousness for the whole brain, for us. We don't know. It happens, clearly, in some way or another. And I was thinking the parallel that we have similar numbers of people on the planet. Actually, in those days, the estimates were fairly similar. We're estimating about 10 billion nerve cells. And we had, at that time, 5 billion people on the planet. And so I felt with the same order of magnitude of processing ability that as we link together, like the nerve cells of the brain linking together, could some collective global consciousness emerge from that? And so that was my hypothesis. And I thought, you know, was it going to become a sane global brain or an insane global brain? It's just a very clear map of a brain. Yeah. But is it sane or insane, which depends, what I saw, that depends upon the value systems that are driving the connections. I'm a huge believer in that in a very interesting way. And I hope that some people may not agree to this, but I don't know if you remember, there was a video that was maybe 25 years ago. It was called To the Power of Ten which basically showed the similarities. You know, the video starts, actually there is one that was produced recently, which starts from the eye of a person sleeping on the grass in a garden and then zooms in to see the tiniest details and then zooms all the way out to see the galaxies and the, the way our universal cosmic structure is. And they're almost identical when you look at them. That, that idea of the tiniest structure is exactly like the biggest structure. If you take that analogy and apply it to the idea of how our neurons are working, and then eventually I would probably say in 10, 15, 20, 25 years time, when all of us are somehow plugged into that machine, by the way, don't be scared, we're already plugged into the machine. Uh, it's just we, we use a keyboard and a screen to plug into it. But you know, if we're all plugged into that machine and each of us is a neuron, it's almost an identical 
intelligence structure to the structure we have inside our brains, be it non-biological, but it's so similar, isn't it? Yes, yes. The network of humanity looks very similar to the network of the brain, and you go out the other direction, and you see these pictures of these strings between the galaxies, these great arrays of galaxies, sort of networks of them throughout the universe. And it's like, wow, that looks similar again. Who knows what's going on? At the moment, though, we are... The connectivity of the human brain is still much, much less than the connectivity we have in the internet. Yeah, true. The bandwidth, the speed at which we connect is much slower. And the connectivity, the speed, yes. I mean, there you're down to fractions of a second. But also the average nerve cell is probably in direct communication with a thousand others, some much more depending where they are. We're not sort of in that direct communication yet. It's growing. We, you know, lots of the time, like, we, you know, we're connecting one to one, but then, you know, the podcasts go out and that'll reach other people, whatever it is, thousands connected to that. So that connectivity, the depth of the connectivity is still growing, has a long way to go. Even though I think the biggest problem with our modern world connectivity, it's only the uplink. So you and I are here chatting, speaking to thousands of people, but sadly, I cannot perceive what the thousand people are thinking. It would be so much more enriching if we could. So let's stay on this line. I mean, from a mathematician, a physicist, I love how you link what the universe is made of. I remember I saw you in a talk once where you started the talk by saying the top 25 questions that science is still struggling with. Oh, yes. Yeah, the number one question is, what is the universe made of? And you take that analogy and take us to what consciousness is. I think our listeners would love that. Can you take us through this quickly? Yes, yes. Not quickly, slowly, slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the questions were posed sometime, I think, about 15 years ago. I may be slightly off there. The journal Science, it was there, a big anniversary issue, which 75 years of the journal or something. And they said, they listed the top 20 unanswered questions. And number one is, what is the universe made of? And number two was, what is the biological basis of consciousness? These were the two big problems. Very interlinked, huh? Yes. And that's what I was beginning to see is, what is the universe made of? We don't actually know. That's the funny bit. The funny bit is we claim we know things, but we know nothing at all. (laughs) We know how to measure the speed of a ball rolling down a hill. We know how to look at what's happening in DNA and, and how you know, the different parts of the proteins interact. We go down further, you know, we understand what's happening in an atom. But what is an atom? Well, it's electrons. What's an electron? Well, it's a particle sometimes, wave other times. We don't really know. The point is, we know a lot about how the universe works but we don't know what the substance is that's yeah, working. We don't know its true nature, yeah, absolutely. It's what it's made of. Because yeah. science doesn't tell us that. Science doesn't tell us what it's made of. And so we, our minds dream up things. But everything we think the universe is made of is just an idea. It's just a concept in the mind. So we're very good at knowing how it works, but no idea of what its substance is. You know what this, I mean, I, I, this truly is probably my biggest discovery of all time is i'm into physics you're into physics you know the more you know about physics the more it fascinates you you go like this is so complex we know so much until you reach a point and at that point suddenly you realize 
that you know nothing at all. You don't know really. So, so you can measure time. You have no idea what time is. You can, you know, move through space, but space is really a concept in your brain. You know a particle, but a particle is not a particle until you've observed it with consciousness. And you have tons of interpretations. Is it M theory? Is it string theory? Is it, you know, quarks? Is it? But all of them seem to see one side of the perspective, but none of them make any informed knowledge at all about the reality right and all as all we know is ideas appearing in our minds appearing in consciousness so that starts us off you know begins to bring in consciousness to it and then you know we go deeper what is consciousness and again we don't really know we consciousness is that which knows it knows all our understandings our theories it knows the mathematics but what does it mean to be conscious? And the traditional view at the moment is that it's somehow the brain creates consciousness. And there's a huge number of problems with that assertion. And that's what some philosophers uh, call the hard problem of consciousness. The easy problem, and it's not at all easy, the easy problem is if we fully understood the brain and how it works, we could understand what happens when we solve a mathematical equation or fall in love or enjoy the taste of a strawberry. But the question still persists of why does any of that lead to an experience? And that's the hard problem. Then the question becomes where, how far down do you go? You know, are dogs conscious? I think so. Dogs experience pain. In fact, we give them anesthetics to make them unconscious when we operate. So clearly, we intuit that other animals are conscious. How far down do you go? Fish? Well, presumably, yes. Spiders? I have a little you know, repugnance about the idea of pulling off the legs of a spider. I don't mind you know, disconnecting my USB drives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you approach a spider, it runs away from you. It's aware of your presence. It's conscious, yeah? So how far down the line do you go? Somewhere, if you have this view that consciousness comes out of matter, then somewhere you say, this isn't conscious and this is. You draw a line. I mean, let's say it's a certain worm you say isn't conscious, but more sophisticated creatures are. Then you have the same hard problem. What is it about this difference between this worm and a slightly more complex creature that gives rise to consciousness. All you've done is you've pushed the hard problem further down the line. So the way that a growing number of, still small, but a growing number of people are seeing it is that consciousness is part of the essence of the cosmos. It is already there. It doesn't arise out of matter, but the complexity of the information processing in matter leads what appears in consciousness to grow more and more sophisticated. So, you know, we, you know, our information processing is very complex. And so what appears in consciousness is this very complex visual auditory stuff with thinking and all the other stuff and feelings. So I think people conflate two questions. It's does the brain influence consciousness? Yes, clearly. Does the brain create consciousness? Probably not. The consciousness is already there. It's part of the cosmos. And that leads to a whole different picture of what's going on that we don't know. There seems to be no actual substance to physical universe. I remember, who was it? Hans Peter Dürer, German the physicist, who was also interested in consciousness. 
he said about 20 years ago, he said, whatever matter is made of, it's not made of matter. <laughs> that actually is so true when you think about it. Yeah. Yes, it's a concept in your brain. No, it's a concept in your consciousness. It's a concept in your consciousness, yes. Yeah. So that leads to the idea that consciousness is actually fundamental to the cosmos. And you could take it a step further and say maybe it's all just consciousness and that's why we don't find any substance. But there clearly is information down there, an electron. We've no idea what an electron is, but we have information, something we call its spin, something we call its charge, something we call its mass. They're just numbers and we assign categories to them. They're just models we think about. So there's, there's information there and one atom here and it's in a different place there. So there's, there's information. And what I think is happening is that information, we're receiving that information through our senses. We don't see color. We see color, but there's no color out there. It's just light, light of a different frequency or energy, whatever that means. And, and then that information appears in consciousness as this. So this is how consciousness experiences information. So all the way, you know, the light coming in through the eyes is just data. All that travels down the nerve fibers is data. And then the brain processes that data. And then we see this. So that's my feeling is that consciousness information, if you like, colors consciousness or activates consciousness. And so we see forms. But this is how the, the information in the universe appears to us as individual beings. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I think science technology shows us that I can simulate a nerve in your brain and make you see a red ball if I need to. And the red ball doesn't actually exist at all, but it, it seems to exist. It seems to be overlaid to consciousness, right? We can simulate consciousness with information if you want. But I actually think there is a layer deeper, and that's the layer that I'm really interested in. And I understand that no one really understands quantum physics. I think... Uh, who said that? One of the very famous quantum physicists. Uh, was it Feynman? Feynman, yes, yes, yes. Richard, yeah, Richard Feynman, yeah. Yeah, Richard Feynman, yeah. The truth is this. So consciousness is fundamental not only in terms of perceiving everything and, and creating the concept from information, but quantum physics will say that the, the collapse of the wave function and the reality of having something turn into that set of information is actually generated by consciousness, by an observation from a form of life. And that's when it becomes really interesting because then it's not us watching the movie, it's us making the movie. Yes, yes, yeah. And I always find it fascinating that you go back to those early quantum physicists, theoretical physicists back in the 1920s, 1930s. Most of them were fascinated by consciousness. Max Planck, Niels Bohr, Einstein to some extent, Schrodinger. They were all fascinated by consciousness because suddenly that had entered the equation. And I think today most physicists have lost that fascination. I think they're much more concerned with the practical applications. What can we do with what we know? And so we've got engrossed in that. And those, I think, really interesting questions that they were exploring sadly just dropped out. Well, they haven't dropped out. I think there's a lot, probably the opposite in our culture generally. There's many, many more people exploring those questions. They just dropped out of theoretical physics. Yeah. 
I think one of the biggest downfalls of humanity is that separation between sciences in a way. It's the idea of I can only study physical phenomena and I call that physics, but then if consciousness comes in, that's the study of spirituality. Let, let them solve that one and then when they figure it out, we'll talk. But the overlap is undeniable. I want to close with probably the most logical question that drives from this. But before I do, I, I always make an announcement before the last question, which is I'm trying to spread the message of happiness to a billion people. And I know that's a crazy number that I cannot do without you listening to us today. So if you're still here and you love Peter's conversation as much as I do, then please share that message and tell others. Leave a review that you like the podcast so that people know and choose to listen to it or teach someone what you learned today. I think it would make their life a little better. So Peter, you had uh, one of the most courageous titles to a book in a world that's going the opposite direction, which is from science to God. And uh, this is a topic that's truly, if you ask me, what are the top 25 questions science has not figured out yet? It's the question of God. You are a true scientist, a true mathematician, but you've gone on an incredible journey in, in a path that's not so common to the path of God. Tell me a bit about that. Yes. The title of the book is about my own journey more than anything. And I started off as a pretty hardcore scientist, fascinated by particularly the mathematics of it all and relativity particularly. I love relativity. Yes. And there came a point, it was actually in the middle of my university career, where I realized that however far we went in physics, it wasn't going to explain consciousness. That was the beginning of my realization about consciousness. So I actually, I changed subject. Well, I added a course. I studied experimental psychology as well for a year. These days is what's called neuroscience. And thinking this would help me understand consciousness. In the background all my life, I was sort of like interested in the mind. And as a teenager, I was doing things like spinning around faster and faster and flashing lights in front of my eyes and playing with self-hypnosis with friends. So that interest was always there. And I realized physics was never going to answer that for me. I did neuroscience. They weren't interested in consciousness one bit. It was hardly mentioned in the course. And then I realized the way to study consciousness wasn't putting electrodes on the brain. Consciousness is subjective. The way to study it is inwardly. And that led me to start looking at techniques of meditation and then studying Indian philosophy and going out to India and studying there. And just I gradually realized that this was almost the most important thing to study and seeing that so many of the problems in the world come down to our self-centered modes of consciousness and what so many of the teachings are talking about in one way or another, you have to sort of tear away some of the cultural trappings. But this is what they're basically saying. We need to step out of the self-centered thinking, come back to our true self. That's the most fundamental thing we can do. And also at that time, seeing there was something to religion. As a scientific kid, I totally rejected religion, just a load of mumbo-jumbo, historic stuff that had no relevance to the world today. And then I began to realize, hang on, there is something here. That underneath all of them, there's a basic understanding of, coming back to what we were saying earlier, why we 
make ourselves unhappy? And how about just coming back, slowing the mind down, whether through meditation or other means? We start coming back to ourselves and we find that source of happiness. And I realized this, this is the fundamental thing that we need to do. This is what the world needs to know. I think very similar to you. And, and so that was my transition. It was really from science to understanding spirituality. But from science to God is a better title. (laughs) (laughs) That would sell. If I ask you in one closing statement, what do you think God is? Uh, I would actually say a noun is wrong. If we have a noun, we think a person, and then we get into all these things about what, who is God. I prefer to think of the divine. I call it the divine, yeah. The divine, and the divine is a quality we connect with and this I think comes out from what many of the mystics are saying is our own true nature is divine. And that's where we connect with the love, the compassion, the feeling of oneness. And in that we are all actually one deep, deep down that deep level of I am beyond I am anybody or anything that deep level of I am is universal. And so when we touch into that consciousness, we are touching into something that feels divine and is universal to i would say all conscious beings but definitely universal to humanity and i think this is what the great mystics have tapped into in one way or another and they've labeled it god because that was the culture they were living in there was this concept of god and so when you drop into something that feels so delicious uh, lovely it's got love there and peaceful you would have said, I, I've been blessed by God. I feel God. I connected with God. I feel I am one with God. Because that was the culture in which you were experiencing that. And so I just like to, in a way, drop the word God and use the word divine as an adjective to describe that experience. So we are connecting into something that is universal. I have to say, I... The first time I hear it this way, and I I love the definition. In my work, I use two words. I used to use them interchangeably, but I think now you make it clear that they are not the same. I think of a designer. The engineer in me believes that there must be someone who wrote the code. Not one, some entity, intelligent entity that wrote the code. And I call that the designer. I love, love the definition that the divine is a quality, that it is that innate quality that's in every one of us that can have the potential to become divine. In some of the mumbo-jumbo of religion, which I think must have some element of interesting truth to it, we come from the divine, and so it's our essence inside, you know, and then maybe we can elevate ourselves to the point where we can reach that again, and that's basically maybe the journey of our life. Yes, I think so. I think so. I thank you so much for your time and for your enormous wisdom and wealth of information and knowledge and generosity of sharing. And I hope you will always, always continue on that path that gets you closer and closer to your divine. Thank you. Thank you. And really enjoyed this time with you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mogaudet, Slow Mo, 
solve for happy or one billion happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.